welcome to the Fresh Expressions Podcast Season 3. I'm your host, Heather Jalad. I'm a local church pastor and a cultivator of Fresh Expressions, new faith communities that strive to reach new people in unexpected places. In Season 3, we're opening our archive of a decade of useful training materials and sharing some of the talks and workshops that have inspired us over the years. This season is brought to you by FX Connect. FX Connect is an online community of church leaders who are reaching new people in new places and where you can find an entire library of practical and inspiring training materials. You can register for free today at fxconnectus.org. We are in for a treat today uh, in this episode of the Fresh Expressions podcast featuring Todd Bolsinger and Dave Fitch talking about something that might perhaps challenge our approach and practice of being the church in the world today. And that is from going fast to going slow. Todd Bolsinger is the co-owner of the AE Sloan Leadership company that coaches and consults with leaders as they navigate change. The executive director of the Dupree Center for Church Leadership Institute and the associate professor of leadership formation at Fuller Theological Seminary. Amongst other things, his work in adaptive leadership continues to make an impact on the church. I know his book, Canoeing the Mountains, is the really kind of my first introduction to his work and one that I encourage everyone to consider to to take a read if you haven't already. Uh, Dave Fitch is the uh, B.R. Linder Chair of Evangelical Theology at Northern Seminary in Chicago. He has uh, pastored and planted uh, many a church plant along the way. His books, Faithful Presence, The Seven Practices of the Church on Mission, and his podcast, Theology on Mission, have certainly made an impact on me. Uh, The rich conversation that these two have is full of gold nuggets of practical wisdom for us today. In an era of of go big or go home, uh, Dave particularly lifts up this value of going all in to small, which really resonates with me uh, as I um, have uh, led churches, as I have consulted with other churches and considering the places where we can go deeper, not wider. That's where real relationships are formed and community is built and real transformation happens. Um, In addition, um, Todd lifts up the the significance of really understanding who we are at the core um, in our churches and, and certainly as followers of Jesus and how we uh, might adapt along the way to the uh, changing landscape around us in the church and the world, and what it looks like to do that through iterative experimentation. Uh, He also really emphasizes uh, the significance of recognizing the competing values that we have and um, and lifting those up, and, and what does it look like for us to embody those values in our local churches and communities, and um, the importance of giving the work back to the people. 
that this is the work of the church, not one uh, solo heroic leader per se, but, but the work of the church, the body of Christ together. And if this talk is valuable to you, there are many, many more like it that you can find at fxconnectus.org. I put on Facebook this morning, when I was thinking through this issue, um, this. When seeking change, a leader should not try to change the whole system in one gigantic move. He or she should look for one point to engage, a small but vulnerable point that can reveal the contradictions in the whole system. Make a small proposal and then go all in on that one space. Let this small activity slowly reveal to the whole. And then I said, this is especially true when leading a church. Um, Part of the background of that is the understanding that um, um, society as a whole, and we're all obvious, we're, we're all uh, aware of this, especially today, but churches as well get locked into ideologies. Things we believe in turn into ideologies. Ideologies often uh, aim the person against something to get their own identity. And their identity becomes locked in to the ideological way we do things. So changing something as simple as uh, worship music on Sunday morning has very little to do with the theology and belief of, of, of the worship and the songs and the words and the tunes and the beat and everything else. It's ideologically driven. This is the way we've always done. My identity is built around singing this particular song at this particular time. How dare you threaten my identity? And so we must start in small ways, locate the, the vulnerable small place. Um, I, remember, I remember one time, I remember that Larry, those of you who are older than 50, do you remember Larry Norman? He's an unidentified flying object. I once did that tune in Lombard Bible Church and almost got thrown out. Okay, but, okay, that's okay if Fitch gets thrown out of church. It's a little disruption that now we have to talk about. And a good leader then opens up space, allows the Holy Spirit to work, and talks about what was offensive about he's an unidentified flying object. And what's going on with you that you are so offended by it? Um, it's a veritable fact of sociology. You can build a big crowd with surprising speed if you start with already a crowd. In church planning, 50 to 100 people. You start with 50 to 100 people, you can go to 1,000 or 2,000 very much quicker uh, than if you start with 10 people. You can actually go faster from 100 to 1,000 than you can from 10 to 100. 
And so this is because 50 to 100 people bring with them already ensconced expectations about what church will be. The results, therefore, that you will achieve with that decent crowd of 100 people will be more of the same. You will perpetuate more of the same. If you want to germinate something new, something engaging, something that listens and responds to actual things going on in your neighborhood, among your people, start small with groups of 12. Start with 12. Seems to be a good strategy that revolutionized the world the first time. Gather around a table. Listen to one another. If I'm a pastor, maybe I'm the one who should start by doing this. Cultivate the presence of Christ. Listen to the struggles that are going on. Empower the gifts of the Holy Spirit. When there's conflict, practice reconciliation. And out of this space will become the miracle that shapes the rest of your congregation. So we're talking about culture change and this whole notion of slowing down. Um, for um, 17 years, I served a congregation that was right next to Camp Pendleton Marine Base. And the Marines have the saying that um, slow, um, smooth is, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Right? So you slow down until you get smooth. And then you can speed up. And I, I want to think about that because what that's about is about slowing down until the people can begin to embody the actions you need them to take. And organizational culture change is ultimately about how leaders embody a value. So your, your actual culture, your actual organizational culture of your church is not in the things you put on the wall or the rhymes you make or the t-shirts. Um, your culture change is actually what you show up and do, right? So the way in which, so if you actually want to pay attention to the organizational culture, the way you ask it is you just look at what people are doing and that is the culture. So when I consulted with a church that said they were deeply committed to church planting, but then when I asked them, tell me about your last church plant, and it was 40 years ago, I had some questions to ask them about how deeply they were committed to church planting, right? So it's, it's not about what we aspire to do, it's what we actually do. So one of the most important things to think about in trying to bring culture change, what I like about this notion of a small uh, piece that David was talking about is this notion that um, if you can break down the culture down into embodied practices, what are the actual things that we're actually going to do with our bodies, then you can begin to identify what needs to change about that. So um, one of the rules of thumb about trying to bring, say, what we call like an adaptive change, the kind of conversation I was having in the, the main session, is if you're trying to bring adaptive change, which is a change that is more than just a quick fix or a, a fix of an expertise, then one of the ways you bring that is that a cultural adaptive change comes as you look at your healthiest part of your core values, your healthiest part of your DNA, and you adapt that be based upon the context. So a faithful embodiment of your core values to the future. So let me give you a Lewis and Clark metaphor since I just talked about them. What, what, what happened at the Lem Pass, um, I believe, inside of Meriwether Lewis, is he realized that though he had been charged to be a person who was going to find a water route, what he actually did is he went back to his core value that he was trained in by Thomas Jefferson, which was the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment core values that he was trained in, and he says this himself in his 31st birthday, he writes in the journal 
that even though he's doing this amazing you know, expedition, he says, I have not done nearly enough to further the happiness and the knowledge of humankind. Right? So the enlightened values are what you do is you, in, you in further the happiness of humankind and the knowledge of humankind. And I believe what he realized at that moment was there is no water route. There's no economic uh, uh, value for me. I'm not going to find the water route, but what I am going to do is explore a whole new world and add to the knowledge of humankind. So what he embodied at that moment was his core value about the Enlightenment, and he kept going, right? So, so what we have to recognize is if we're trying to bring culture change, the process, I believe, is about leaders who go back and look at what we're actually doing and ask ourselves, what are, what are our, our healthiest actual values? Not our aspirational values, but what's the healthiest things that we actually are already committed to doing, and then asking if from that moment we re, uh, kind of we re-engage them, and then from re-engaging them we start to ask what does it mean to make a faithful re, um, um, a faithful adaptation. So it's no longer about a water route, but it is about a discovering a world. It's no longer about economic gain, but it is about serving the, na- the, the, the enlightenment values of my age. It's no longer about this. It's now about this. But what's clear about this is that I, that I am being consistent. This is why Ronald Heifetz says that um, adaptive change is inherently conservative. What you're mostly doing is you're asking the question, the way Jim Collins does in one of his books, what should never change? And if you just stop and have that conversation, you're going to have enough arguments in your church, right? Um, so if you can get to the place of getting down to, what's the thing that we're going to be the biggest amount of stewards on? What are, what's the legacy we're going to pass on? What is so true about us that if we lose this, we stop being ourselves? Holding on to that and then asking, if that's true, then we will go forward. So Barry Weather Lewis said, what's never going to change about me is I'm still going to be a, a man of the Enlightenment. <laughs> And so I'm going to move forward in a new way into this new, ter- new terrain. And I think the key to moving forward goes to right where David which, which is, which is how do you basically begin to create a very small, iterative experiment that we can learn from? So um, um, I sometimes say a safe, modest experiments. When I'm working with churches, I'll say stuff like, you want to make a culture change, and so, so figure out this. Figure out a core value that you know should never change. Figure out what it means to make a healthy adaptation of that. In other words, an expression of that that is faithful to our values, that everybody would agree. Try an experiment that will not get anybody hired, not get anybody fired, will not take so much money that, that it risks the whole church, but it causes us to put some skin in the game. Think of it as just a small prototype and make your goal... Not does it work or not, but what do we learn from it? Right? The goal of an experiment is what you learn from it. And if you can make that your movement, what you'll discover over time is that's how you smooth everything out. Right? You slow down enough to get to here's something that's really core about us. Here's something that we are that we know needs to adapt and not lose as we move forward. And here's an experiment that we're going to take on that is not going to be so risky we could lose the whole church over it or the whole organization over it, but it's going to cause us to make some changes. And what we're really going to learn at that moment is what happens when we do it, right? So Ed Friedman, who's a systems person, makes this example. He says, just do one thing, one small thing that will watch and get everybody's attention, right? 
So he talks about stuff like move, uh, move the communion table, right? Like, like don't move it off the, just move the communion table. Why? People will notice, they'll try to pay attention, it'll raise those questions. You know, if you, uh, I, I'm a firm believer that you probably don't want to be a brand new person to come in and mess with the worship service right away. Most people have, as David said, ideological, much more deeper convictions than that than they lay it on. But if you can actually say what a core value to us, whatever those core values are, we're going to live out, what does it mean for us to make an adaptation of that core value um, so that it moves forward? And, and it, gets, it lets you think about the idea of how we faithfully re-engage our traditions, how we basically reconnect and kind of energize through experiments because of the context, and then we reiterate, we, we make experiments that help us to learn, and we keep moving them forward. And, and so culture change is really about the way which we're uh, we are faithfully changing our embodied practices to live out our core values in a changing world, in a changing environment. So I'll leave it at that. It's probably enough for us to tease out as we go. Yeah. Todd, do you want to start? Do you have one question you could pose to Dave about what he said? So Dave, when I hear that, I love this notion of starting with these kind of really interesting places. So I, but I was a senior pastor for 17 years. So where in the org chart do you think that should happen? Is that the senior pastor's job? Is that a volunteer's job? Is that, is that like the fringe youth pastor who may not be here tomorrow if it fails? Like, 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 like where do you think those experiments need to happen in, a, in an org chart um, way and, and, and um, to, to be the most successful? Yeah. So I am, I mean, I've been involved in seven church plants in my life. And um, only one of them got bigger than a thousand. And I was gone by then. <laughs> Uh, but I've been around, especially in these last five years, with a lot of large churches and their leadership struggling with how to change and how to engage. <clears throat> and the conversations, uh, the, the answer to this conversation I usually give is it has to start at the top. I don't like the idea that there's a top. But there's a top. I'm against... I think Jesus is against hierarchical leadership, but this is another, that's a topic for another session. I think we ought to be in multiple leadership settings, but having said that, uh, it's got to be the most visible person who can galvanize the most energy in this embodied leadership that you're talking about. And, and here's what it's going to look like. Okay, if I can just draw on John chapter 8. My, this is what I think it means to Unwind the ideologies, unwind the, the dug-in parts of our churches and their identity structures. John chapter 8, Jesus is there and they bring the adulterer in front of him and the Pharisees say, Hey, um, she has been caught in the sin of adultery. The law says we should stone her. What do you say? And of course, the law now has become ideological. It's now removed from the concrete everyday life of the nation of Israel, where we were being taught how to live life. And now it's going to be used against, actually, not only against the adulterer, but to uh, make up two sides. Who's going to stone her and who's not? And Jesus does not engage. He's, I suppose he was supposed to be writing in the sand or something. And he lets this, uh, 
this thing uh, stir up. And then he does what in ideological terms we call over-identification. He says, he reveals the contradiction. He says, let you who are perfect, who have never sinned, cast the first stone. It's almost like, let's go! Let's go! And he's, he's egging them on and they're all realizing, whoa! And he's deconstructing the desires and the energies and the false contradictions that they're living their life on. And it flitters away. Okay, so all this to say, and then once all that's gone, we can actually deal with the issues and the problems in real life. And he can say to her, where are your accusers? He can make space for grace and say, you are forgiven and loved. Now work out what it means. Now we can discern what it means not to sin any longer. That's embodied leadership that stirs up and reveals what's going on. And that has to come from the most visible person. So I know this Methodist dude whose church was just encaptured. They couldn't get outside their four walls. And they had all these issues with drinking. No drinking, it's a sin. As soon as you drink, you are not a Christian. And what he did was he went and sat in a bar, Galewood Tap, every Thursday night. He, he only drank ginger ale. I, I wish he would have taken a, a light beer. I don't think it would have been a problem. But he did it lightly. He embodied the issue. And everybody said, my pastor's sitting in a bar on Thursday night. What's going on? And he said, yeah, what's the problem? Well, you're sitting in a bar on Thursday night. Yeah, what's the problem? And he opened up space and they started to realize, well, what are we called to? Where are the lost people? I was only having a ginger ale. I think that's the kind of, that's the kind of small, uh, little provocative action, ironic in tone, that can open up space to discern what God's calling us to do. That's it. So in terms of, so your question on the org chart, you're trying to create culture change. Where does it have to sit? Who, like it really, you're suggesting it's really got to happen with the most visible person. The most visible person. That's going to be noticed at Gail would tap on a Thursday night. Yeah. And, and by the way, that's not most of your issues, but whatever your issue is, and I can name about three hot ones right now, that if I did, we might have a storm right in the room right now. Somebody's got to go and be with this, this person group that is, that is the struggle and open up space for the kingdom and open up space in your church for the kingdom. Okay. And what would you have a question for? for yeah. Um, okay, so as I was listening to you talk about, I'm, I'm really into this embodied, a, a leader who embodies the values in the direction that he's trying to go or she's trying to go. Um, but how many times have I heard, I think I've heard this maybe 25 times in the last five years. The leader, the big dog, the, the hierarchical top has this vision for mission, vision for leading his church to engage these outside the walls of what goes on in the church but he gets caught up in the machinery almost every time. The machinery 
swallows him up, absorbs him or her up. And um, it gets discouraging so much to the point where I where I feel like the answer is get a big wrench and just stick it right into the machinery. Mm -hmm. Is there any other way than the how do you you were pastor of a very large church. How do you not get caught up in the machinery? That's the question I asked you. It's the same one, right? And so, that, it's, I mean, I mean and, so, and so part of this is actually the issue, is that what you realize is, let's say, say we're, since we're talking about the pastor. If the pastor's caught up in the machinery, then the default value of the church is keep the machine running. So what you're talking about is if the pastor can find a way to, to provoke that, we can at least raise that issue, right? And so the way I think of it, think, tend to think about this is the way you bring change is by raising to the top competing values. And competing values creates the energy for being able to ask the question. So we say we want to reach out to our neighbors, but we spend all of our time and we give all of our affirmation to our pastor for keeping the institution going. So what are we, gonna, what are we basically prioritizing? And what are we going to do about that? And so for me, the, again, the embodiment of values is not something that, um, I mean, it's so interesting, I think our perspective, you're like, just go to the bar and, and provoke. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, my, my answer, I'm a Presbyterian, is like, go to the session and, and have a conversation. You know, so I often think my job was to take my problem back to my session, right? You're telling us you want us to reach other people, you're telling us you want us to be a missional church, and yet I'm the most visible person, and I keep getting affirmed for, you know, making sure the machine runs. So... One of the rules of thumb is you give the work back to the people most affected. How do I give that work back to my leadership team so we can actually talk about that challenge? And, and how do we wrestle with it and how do we make hard decisions about it? And so I would often say, I mean, as a pastor, I would say that whatever you want me to do, we have to start with the notion there's some stuff I'm going to not be able to do. So let's get really clear on what you can tolerate me not doing. So... If it means that I can't go to every event on campus or I can't, um, I can't be the person who's in charge of every Excel spreadsheet or I can't be the person who goes to every denominational meeting or you know, there's some stuff I'm not going to get done. So let's have a conversation about our genuine competing values about the things we want me to embody as the most visible person using your idea so that we can move the organization forward. And I think one of the differences is because you've done church plants, you're like, Send somebody out there and provoke a problem. And I'm like, okay, I, I'm used to changing structures. I'm a, I, I really, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Presbyterian. I'm kind of an institutional guy, right? So, like, I think about changing organs. And, I'm, and now I'm a vice president in a seminary. So, right, my job is how do you do startups within an institution, right? How do you, how do, you do innovation within an institution? Yeah. It's just two different frames to come from. I remember, so... This is the difference between me and you. I, I, I was in a I'm church. Sure. I was I was in a church plant, and it grew from ten people to uh, two hundred. This is right before you, maybe two years before you came. Two hundred and twenty people. We had a room that sat maybe two hundred people, and um, I was really concerned that we had become the new hip uh, church in town. I've never been hip. <laughs> well, I don't. I certainly have never been hip. Here was an idea that I would be interested to know how many people here would ever give a try. I proposed what I called the shutter down option. The shutter down option was, let's get rid of Sunday morning altogether for a period of three to six months and do everything we do on Sunday morning in the homes in the neighborhood. Okay, immediately people started. Hey. 
Okay, but Todd Bolsinger probably can't do that, and, and there's probably one good reason. And it was a reason that it didn't work in this church plant, but it did work in the next church plant after this church plant. We, a lot of us were making salaries, or not much, but a little bit, and we were worried, how's the offering? This is one of the first questions. How are we going to get the offerings on Sunday morning? I think we've got to deal with the issue of money, folks, if we're going to have true revolution. And I don't mean that, has, that means getting rid of salaried pastors. I don't. But there have, we have to put it out on the table. So the second church plant, the one I'm in right now, I actually proposed it and I thought no one would go for it. And Burbaum goes for it. And he says, we're not just going to shut down Sunday morning for the summer, July and August. I said, let's just do it for July and August. He goes, no, we're going to do it for July, August, September, all the way to the beginning of Advent. I go, that's too much. We're not going to have a church left if you do this. Well, he did it anyways. And um, do you know, our offerings came in. Uh, and, and the house gathering started to flourish in the neighborhood and people got really antsy and they were more anxious to come back to Sunday morning gathering than they were before we quit. And it set off a new uh, vibe into the neighborhoods. I think we ought to do it again. But that's something, would, could you ever pull that off in a Presbyterian church? I don't know if I could pull it off. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's some others who can. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. There's um, so actually, so like one of the books that I'm using now, Fuller. So think of it. I can take it into my current context. Is we use a book called Dual Transformation that talks about um, how do you overcome the innovator's dilemma, which comes out from Clay Christensen out of Harvard, where it talks about the fact that innovative companies end up becoming institutions that get disrupted by other innovations. So they use some different examples of of how you can do it. And one of the ways to do it is to think about Thinking of the organization, and this, this is why I think Fresh Expressions works well to think about this. Thinking of the organization as having two distinct parts. Uh, how do you make the most strategic adaptation of your core ministry, which you guys probably call the inherited church? So you're not just leaving the inherited church to die, be fat, flabby, institutional. You need to make it as lean and appropriate and, and a best missional adaptation itself, and at the same time, have enough bandwidth to start like a new, uh, a new, uh, Business B, a new plan B, right? <clears throat> I'm the new plan B at Fuller. That's my job. I'm, my job is that we have our core graduate institution under the provost, answers to the president. I'm, I'm in charge of a new division, answers to the president, and it's all about the way in which we take the resources of Fuller and make them available to the mission of God around the world, whether anybody needs a graduate degree. So it's still, it's, it's, it's radical, because what it says to our faculty and to our students, we're still doing scholarship, we're still doing teaching, we're still doing graduate work, but we're also leveraging that in a whole new environment to give to people embodied, people embodied in their context, in their embedded context, giving them access to that. What you're saying is like, could we shut down the, the seminary for a, and like stop teaching classes for a year or two to do this new thing? And the answer to me is there's no way we could do that. It would be kind of dumb anyway for us. But if we don't try some experiment over here, you know, if you're, if you're, I mean, you can be Netflix and you can disrupt Blockbuster and get rid of, get rid of tapes. But even Netflix figured out it needed to go to streaming. And so there's this secondary angle that I want to talk about. And that's why when I talk about culture change, like what is our core value? At, at Fuller, Mark Labberton, our president said, Fuller wasn't started by one person. Fuller was started by two people. One was Harold John Ockengay, who was an academic, and the other was Charlie Fuller, who was a radio evangelist. And Fuller's always had 
as a deep core value, a commitment to both scholarship and mission and evangelism. But it's always in the past done it by saying, we're going to do scholarship and those people are then going to do mission. Now we're saying, here's the radical change, we're going to do scholarship and we're going to do uh, a, a commitment to mission and, and leadership formation co uh, simultaneously. Now, in terms of scale, our graduate program is way bigger than my little division. But in terms of importance and, and uh, resources we're putting to it and money we're raising, it's now becoming a, a new experiment. So, so you get two basically two different ways of thinking about innovation and culture change. One that can be more radical because it's it's out of a church, a new church, and the other is the way I'm the way I try to think about it is how do you make institutions that are going to be here whether we like it or not? We could argue about that, but I actually think there's a value in institutions um, more nimble and more innovative, so that we're not wasting, so we're not basically setting aside all of that investment yeah. that people have made for years and years and years. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to f kind of frame it in this way, reading the description for this culture change, whether in an organization or a society, is a complex task that requires leaders to find a way to offer an outsider's perspective while being firmly part of that culture. Todd's exactly what you were just speaking to. David Brooks calls this operating uh, at the edge of the inside. And, and I think that's probably where a lot of us in the room right now maybe find ourselves mentally or in reality, right? That we're sort of operating at the edge of the inside. So as, as, as our friends here begin to ask some questions, I'd love for you all to sort of keep that framework in mind and as much as you can respond to some of this with your own stories about what you think it looks like to faithfully, what kind of character, character you need to faithfully be an edgy insider. So with that, um, who has a question? You started with, uh Small, make small, take small steps, and then Dave, you went to um, take away the Sunday service for three months. Todd, you said be nimble. Small seems to communicate generally slower. Moving a Sunday, taking away a Sunday service is not doesn't sound small, and nimble talks about quicker. Talk about that sort of tension. How's that work? So, so for me, notice, um, I, I said slow is smooth and smooth is fast, right? So my deal is, is the way you slow, you slow down until we get really clear that we're not going to trip over each other. We understand where we're going, we're going to do. We make an experiment out of it that we can actually try and take on. So, so I, you know, go back to Dave's question. As a Presbyterian, no, I wouldn't get rid of the Sunday morning service. Right? At least that to me, I would think, I actually love this idea, but in the context of this conversation about doing slow things, I think that's pretty radical for most of us in most of our inherited churches. Now, I actually think it would be kind of fun to try, you know, the part of me likes that stuff. But to fit this out, recognize what I'm really <clears throat> saying here is saying there is a way of freeing up and thinking about experiments that live to be experiments so that we can learn something. So if nothing else, what I loved is what they learned out of that experiment, which was way more, way bigger than I would have been comfortable with, is they learned they can actually survive financially if they did that. I'll bet that gives them courage now to try something way better and way even more radical than that. So what do we learn is a really important way of bringing this together. I'm trying to figure out what's the thing I learned that I wouldn't have seen before if I didn't try an experiment. You want to talk about the difference between start small and the nuclear option? 
Do you see attention there? I do, I do. And what I think will work and my personality are two different things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, so I don't recommend getting rid of Sunday morning church to everybody. But it does, it does give me an imagination for what kind of disruption, what disruption can do uh, in a church. Um, and we now have the possibility of seeing something that we couldn't see before. And in churches that are 50 years old or 100 years old, there's a lack of imagination. So all we need is something to help us see what we couldn't see before. And so I study revolutions and they never happen in the, in the big arena. They happen in these small little places. And um, yeah, so I, really the fact that, I, that, first of all, I didn't think John Burbaum, one of our pastors, I pastor with, with a total of four pastors. John's one of them. I didn't think he'd take me up on it. I, it had failed in the previous church plant. No one would take me up on it. Uh, but I just wanted us to think through why we're doing what we're doing and why. And, and for goodness sakes, are we doing it? And uh, he took me up on it, and it was a very profitable exercise for our church, I believe. Um, all that to say, I think that kind of disruption is possible in bigger churches, but you must do it in small, sneaky, disruptive, ironic ways. Enter in to the antagonisms and the things people are holding on to. Cause a little disruption. Make space. Talk it through. Well, then why don't we try this? It's that kind of uh, leadership that I see, once again, in John, in John chapter 8 and almost every other page of the Gospels, where Jesus enters peacefully into a place, will not enter the ideology or the antagonism or the fight on its own terms, but disrupts it and makes space to say, well, what are we going to do with this? And um, that's what I'm aiming for. Dave, you talked about the power of 12 as a starting point, and I think there's wonderful reasons for starting in that. It's a, a great science group to do things. But as you start with 12, you grow to 50 or 100 or 1,000 in that process. How do you keep the power of smallness within the context of larger groups? Yeah, well, in our church, um, I was showing this map yesterday. Um, and uh, I, so I, I copied this map and I really uh, pathetically drew a church in the middle of both maps. One had a hundred, but the arrows went out and there's a house here and there's a house here. And from this house, I call it the third circle, the half circle, various places we're inhabiting among the lost, the hurting and the broken. And, and, I, and I argued, OK, this church of a hundred really has a thousand people if you look at all the relationships and the spaces that are open. And then I had another picture of the same map with a large church of a thousand where all the arrows were going in. I realize, by the way, this is merely a provocative back and forth. I don't claim all large churches are attractional and all small churches are this way. But if we have the right imagination for what church is, the church is not only Sunday morning, but rather Sunday morning is part of something that goes seven days a week. I believe we can keep the significance of these places on the map at 12 to 20 people 
and then split to another 12 and 20. It has to be intentionally developed within the DNA of every house gathering in a neighborhood. And I, in my book, I talk about the, es the essentials of what we practice in terms of the presence of Christ in the neighborhood through those, those groups. But it is a struggle. I, it took me a year, I, uh, over a year to get 10 people to meet at my house for dinner every Friday night. And I was, I was talking to or emailing or engaging Christians. Once the 10 got there, after six months, such trust, such presence, it ballooned to 24, 25 people. And I couldn't get them to break up. I couldn't get them to break up. I hadn't done the work of intentionally saying, look, we're only going to get this big, and then we're going to split off into another group. Right there. I think pastors or leaders have this tension of wanting to go a little faster than their congregations and dear hearts say to us. We like to just be patient. But I think also within congregations, there's laity who want to go faster even than the leaders, and then there's ones that are digging their heels in. How do you handle the tension of your congregation at different speeds? Mm. Good question. Mm. Yeah, you, I mean, you said earlier, you know, leadership is disappointing people at a rate that they can absorb. And what, so if I'm understanding you correctly, you're, you're like, well, in a congregation, there's going to be people that can absorb disappointment at a pretty quick rate, and those who can are slower. Are you asking, how do you negotiate that difference? In, right, in, it's one thing between the leader and the laity. It's another thing between laity and laity. How, do you even try to hold everybody together? Yeah, so, um, so one thing to think about is, um, in one sense, the only way to think about that is that it's about resistance. And the resistance is not just the people who want to go slow. There's also resistance from people who want to go fast and are willing to leave people behind. Right? So when you think about it as resistance, part of what you have to hold on to is the way we deal with resistance is by, is by being really steady about our value. So when I was, so example, I used to tell a story all the time at San Clemente. I went to San Clemente Press when I was 33 years old, and I was interviewing with another church at the same time. And, and both churches, I asked them the same question, which is, I'm a young pastor. I could probably make a bad mistake here. So outside of something moral, what's the thing I would do at your church that would get me immediately kicked out of here? Like, like what's the thing that I got, what's the tripwire that I need to be aware of? And one church said, man, just, you'll be safe if you just go slow. The other church said, you'll be safe if you can figure a way to keep us all together. Now, here's a question I would ask you to think about. Which church do you want to go to? <laughs> right? Those are both... Me, my personality, I went to the church that said, keep us together. Because the church that said, just go slow, there's no way I could ever go slow enough for everybody. And for the church that said, keep us all together, I could say, look, we're going, and we might have to carry some of you, but we're all going to go, right? And so, and, and, you know, we're, we're going to go as fast as we can carry um, as fast as we can carry the slowest person, but we're bringing that person. If they want to jump off and go, they can, but we are going. So there's a place where working through, for us it was about our value. One value was about we really want to change, but we are, we're, we're afraid of making everybody scared. The other value really was, and the, and the second church, the church I went to, had just gone through a split. So their big thing was, we just want to stay together. Okay, well, we're going to learn how to stay together, but we are going, right? And so those are competing values, and my job was to hold that. 
which always meant, you know, you were in my seminar yesterday, it's always meant dealing with the heat. How do you keep enough urgency to keep us moving, but not so much that, it's like, um, I use a crock pot analogy, right? If you have the right amount of ingredients at the right amount of time with the right amount of heat, you can feed everybody. But if it's too high, you'll scorch them, it burns, and you gotta throw it out. And if it's too low, Everybody's happy, but nothing gets transformed, and pretty soon you've spoiled the meat, wasted the vegetables, and you don't want to put wine in there to start with because now it's ruined, right? So how can you actually keep the right amount of urgency and the right amount of security to move people through? It's what, it's what Ronald Heifetz refers to as a holding environment, creating the right holding environment that allows there to be the right transformation at the right time. There's always people who just want to turn that heat up and move it, and they're mad if anybody else won't go with them. That's as much resistance as people who like say, no matter what you do, we don't want you to move. And this is the tension we're in in a lot of places. And I gotta admit, as a person who's mostly been cultivated out of power, I, I am just more on the conservative side. I'm more comfortable with the status quo, and oftentimes I need those people in my congregation going, uh-uh, you don't have enough heat going on. You, you need to turn that thing up. But it's often my job that I'm in tension with those folks and need to be, right? So um, that's, that, there, is no, there is no science out of that. That is, just, that is art, that's, that's cultivating fire. You need to tend to that fire at the right time. And that's attention, and that's wisdom, and that's a lot of you know, tasting of the stew to make sure it's going well, right? So, yeah. Yeah, so um, I have an ecclesiology that believes conflict is good. I, I, have, I have an ecclesiology that says the worst thing I can say at the end of 30 years of ministry is that the high point was when all 300 people were happy at the same time. <laughs> so... If somebody says we're going too fast, there's a conflict there, a moment there when I can open up the space for kingdom. Why? Why are we going too fast? What are we doing that you don't like? And there's space for discipleship and reconciliation and all sorts of good things. Same way with the person who says we're going too slow. And, and, and nine times out of ten, I'm the one who's probably going to go too slow or too fast. So I'm the one who needs to learn, am I going too slow or am I, am I going too fast? Every situation is a new moment to lead this congregation one step further into the kingdom. I like too slow or too fast. I, I think that's a sign something's happening. If everybody goes to church on Sunday morning and is completely happy, we've got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Todd, what I heard you say in the pre-conference yesterday and right now as you were talking about it, like I think about that as pastoral dexterity, right? You sit in a position of power and leadership and you've got to know as the pastor how you're calibrating those things. And that takes a tremendous amount of dexterity on your, depart on your part. And Dave, like, so we've been in, in church community together. And one of the things that I've observed about our ecclesiology and your approach is, is that there's significant congregational discernment that takes place about where we're going, at least like that it wasn't, you know, the pa you know, we didn't operate in a way that the pastor goes off and some on a metaphorical mountain and comes down with a vision and then has like to- Like a Moses. Like a Moses, and then has to figure out how do I just get everybody to do my thing, but rather like there was a way in which 
you know, there was a way in which you led and other pastors led in a way that vision was cultivated and discerned from the ground up, that doesn't remove the need for still pastoral dexterity and helping different people navigate through that differently. But the way in which, you know, vision is instilled within the life of a congregation can happen that way too. We have one minute before we have to go. Anyone have a burning question? As you're talking about building culture in the church internally, how do you maintain a healthy moving forward with the 12? And so you're 10 years in, you're driving, you've got a church born from like 200 to 500, 500 to 1,000. How do you meet the new person? You just got saved off the street, bring them into the culture. Do you have any experience in how to Great question. In one minute or less, um, I believe unless you're not, unless you're leading and living the Christian life in three circles, of which the table of 12 is one, you are not living the Christian life. And therefore, I mean, so for me, I had to learn this later in life. I'm not as old as he thinks I am. Well, actually, he knows how old I am. But uh, <laughs> later in life, I had to learn just how impactful it was opening up space with the hurting, the lost, being with the least of these, that the risen Christ was there. And therefore, I can't just live my life in the circle on Sunday morning or the circle in my house, or else I will become introverted, stale, insulated, and curmudgeonly. You're probably thinking you're already that, uh, but it'd be much worse. <laughs> so to me, we need to lead our people out. Everybody's got to have have a, what I call a half circle space, a space to be guest among the hurting for their life to be truly lived in the way of Christ. Fresh Expressions is a worldwide movement of everyday missionaries who want to see churches thrive in the places we live, eat, work, and play by leveraging the creativity and endurance of the inherited church. To learn a simple five-phase process for starting a new expression of church, go to freshexpressions.com backslash how to start. Season three is brought to you by FX Connect, an online community full of other church leaders passionate about reaching new people in new places. Access our entire library of practical and inspiring training materials and connect with other church leaders at fxconnectus.org. Season three of the Fresh Expressions podcast is hosted by me, Heather Jalad. It's edited and produced by Jeanette Statz, Kathleen Blackie, and Chris Morton. Our national director is Dr. Christopher Backert. If you have learned something or been encouraged by this podcast, please help us spread the word. You can give us a review on Apple Music or Spotify and share this episode on social media. Now, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that his ways may be known on earth and salvation among all nations.